0: Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back to a very special episode of the Plant
1: Powered People podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane and Tony Okamoto. We are so excited to bring on our friend, Bruce Friedrich, to talk about how to handle tough conversations during the holiday season. He is someone that we've both looked to for advice over the years. He has been a speaker for ever, for decades. Yeah, I mean, he has spoken
0: at TED Uh, I mean, on all sorts of national television shows, Today Show, CBS Morning Show, CNN, Fox News Channel, all of that. He's presented at
1: Harvard, Yale, Stanford, MIT, all over. But wait, most importantly, he spoke at my wedding. (gasps) He he read a passage at my wedding. So more important than all of those and what establishes his credibility is that he spoke at my wedding. And did a
0: beautiful job, of course. Um, So yes, he is someone who has such wisdom. He carries a lot of advice for communicating positively and effectively. And so we thought he'd be the perfect person to bring on... Before the holidays, the holidays can be tough.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it can be emotional and overwhelming and you feel like you need to answer every single question right because the pressure is on to promote the plant-based lifestyle. And so we wanted to prepare you to let you know that you don't have to all of that pressure that you put on yourself and to enjoy time with your family. And so we hope this episode is super helpful.
0: Yep. For anyone who's feeling a little anxiety around the holidays, we hope this helps erase
1: it. And this episode is dedicated to you. And happy Hanukkah and Merry Christmas. Hi, Bruce. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to
2: be on. I really appreciate the invitation.
1: You have been so inspiring to both Michelle and I over the years that we thought that you'd be the perfect person to help our audience get through the holidays and help them answer some tough questions that they might encounter from their families. I know a lot of people ask about where you get your protein and other questions like that. And so we were going to be asking you all kinds of things (laughs) about how to help our audience get through the holidays and in in general. Uh, But first, we'd love to hear you talk about how you got here. Where are you from, first of all?
2: Well, I am from Oklahoma, although I have lived in Washington, D.C. since 1990. So uh, for more than half of my life, I've been in Washington, D.C., but my formative years, uh, I grew up in Oklahoma.
1: Cool. And was your family vegetarian or is that something that you found later in life?
2: Um, well, I found it in 1987 when I showed up at college uh, and I volunteered with a group called Poverty Action Now uh, and another group that was looking at uh, global economic policies, especially in Latin America. And I was given a book called Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay. And in Diet for a Small Planet, uh, Francis Moore LePay basically makes the argument that growing crops to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals is extraordinarily inefficient. So it's environmentally problematic uh, and also that it creates competition for land and feed crops that are used to grow feed for animals, which uh, throws subsistence farmers off their land uh, and also raises the price of those crops and leads to greater global starvation. So I read that book in 1987. Um, I adopted a vegan diet at that point. um, And I brought my parents along with me. It didn't take a tremendous amount to convince them. uh, But my parents adopted a vegan diet probably also in 1987, maybe 1990. No, sorry, not maybe 1988.
0: Wow, that's amazing. So few of us can say they've had the support of their parents um, in making those decisions with them. That's so cool.
2: Yeah, I feel extremely lucky. Um, You know, my parents are are pretty progressive. Well, my mom passed away, but um, my dad is progressive. My mom was progressive. So uh, just chatting with them about the inefficiency and chatting with them about the fact that throughout the famine in Ethiopia in the 1980s, throughout the famine in Somalia in the 2000s, what's happening in Brazil right now, chopping down the rainforest, uh, both to graze animals and also to grow soy, to feed to farm animals, all of that is is inextricably linked with the desire of people in especially developed economies uh, to eat meat. So that argument, uh, my parents found uh, found pretty persuasive, and obviously I did too. So um but yeah, i feel I feel really lucky that um, they were open to to hearing those arguments. Many people's families are not.
1: So where did you go from there?
2: Um, well, when I got out of college, I moved to washington, d c and I ran a homeless shelter. Uh, And a soup kitchen in inner city Washington, D.C., for about six years. Um, I taught in inner city Baltimore through Teach for America for a couple of years, and I worked in animal protection uh, for quite a while. Most recently, uh, before I started the Good Food Institute at the end of 2015, um, I was policy director for Farm Sanctuary, working mostly on regulatory enforcement of the Humane Slaughter Act, but also Alongside the Humane Society of the United States, on quite a bit of uh, state animal protection legislation focused on farm animals.
1: And what are you doing now? In
2: 2015, I started an organization called the Good Food Institute, and people can find out all about what we're up to at gfi.org on the web. But basically, the focus is on using markets and food technology to transform agriculture. So. we realized that meat is made up of just uh, fats and carbohydrates. No, there's no carbohydrates in meat. Uh, meat up, but made up of uh, fats and proteins uh, and minerals and water and everything in meat exists in plants. So if you apply uh, the right amount of scientific rigor, we can figure out how to biomimic meat with plants. Uh, we can also grow meat directly from cells. So chicken is the most efficient animal at turning crops into meat. And it takes about uh, nine calories into a chicken to get one calorie back out. It takes six to seven weeks to grow a chicken to full slaughter weight. If you grow the cells directly, you can get that same growth in about six days with about a third of the energy inputs. So just a much more efficient way of making actual animal meat. Um, and even more efficient than that, one-to-one conversion is let's take crops and Uh, figure out how we turn those crops into plant-based meat. So GFI is is basically focused on that. And we have teams focused on policy, corporate engagement, and science and technology.
0: That's amazing. Everything you're doing is gonna one day, hopefully soon, just remove all of this struggle of everyone having to eat differently because you can make the same foods that people are used to eating actually ethical and sustainable and all of those things, which is incredible. so Bruce, um, okay, when I first saw you speak, it was when I had very, very recently gone vegan. I'd been a vegetarian since I was eight, but I had just gone vegan. And at the time I felt um a lot of pressure and I felt super overwhelmed communicating about my choices because they were so important and meaningful to me. And I, I wanted to be able to express myself well, but I never felt like I really could. And I remember at your talk that I had gone to, you talked about um, the, like just different tools and your approach to communicating about these issues that was extremely helpful and inspiring to me at that time. And so that's really what I am super eager to dig into in this podcast episode is kind of your advice on communicating positively and having, um, yeah, so creating situations where instead of walking away, you feel disheartened and like frustrated and both sides do that. We can walk away feeling really good from every angle.
2: Great. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to have that conversation. That's a, uh, that's a talk uh, that I've been giving for, for quite a while. And I think a lot of a lot of the uh, recommendations are counterintuitive and you can justify, certainly, um, even beyond rationalization, like you can actually make a strong argument uh, for behaving in, in ways that are counterproductive. But if you are um, the animal in the battery cage or the animal in the slaughterhouse, you really want the people who are advocating on your behalf uh, to do it in the strongest way possible in the way that's going to have maximum likelihood of positive impact, and so we need to be uh, studying what the science says about persuasion. So um, there are books like uh, Influence by an Arizona State professor, um, Robert Ciadini, I think his name is, Uh, books like How to Win Friends and Influence People by Stephen, oh, I'm sorry, that's by um, Dale Carnegie, books like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Uh, by Stephen Covey. Uh, These books, I think, are probably read by very close to 100% of people in sales and marketing. Um, And one challenge is to to take the lessons from these books and to apply them to our interactions in the world um, so that we can be maximally effective on on behalf of um, really helping people to see things from a vantage that is pretty different from the overall way that society looks at things like uh, meat consumption.
0: Yeah, those are such great resources. I've read most of them, but we will definitely include all of those books in our show notes. If anyone's interested, we'll link to them all there. Um, And what I really love and what I learned from first meeting you more than a decade ago um, was that I had felt at that time that you're either a natural born speaker and communicator (laughs) um, and that that just comes naturally and you can Move audiences and just make a big impact through communication, or you just don't have that inside of you. And I remember you sharing how you very much didn't feel like you were a natural born communicator and you studied it and read up on it. And I think you had said you had done Toastmasters, which later inspired me to do Toastmasters. And that through just like dedicating yourself to the craft of communication, you were able to become what is now Uh, just like one of the greatest communicators out there today. Um, So can you talk a little bit about that, like your experience over the years and how that evolved?
2: Well, I'll start by saying that is super nice of you. um, And I think uh, not well-deserved, but super kind. Um, And then I will also just point out there are two different sorts of communication. And it's interesting the degree to which... um, People can be particularly good in one area and less good in the other area or vice versa. Um, They both profit from studying um, how to be maximally effective. And then one is what you just nodded at, the idea of speaking in front of an audience. And it's really surprising how many people are excellent in front of an audience and then they shut down in one-to-one conversations. Mm. They are two different skill sets. I think most people um, are probably better in one-to-one interactions and less good in front of an audience. But it is absolutely not the case. And maybe it's the opposite of the case that being good in in one method of communication means you're going to be good in the other method of communication. Uh, It's also the case that both of them profit tremendously from getting better at them. And it's interesting to me how many people will um, talk about how much they care about animal protection or veganism or kind of any Uh, issue. People will talk about how much they care about it. Um, And then they won't put in the time that allows them to be as persuasive as possible in their interactions with other people. So, you know, you think about it from a a vegan perspective, you as a vegan, say, do sort of one lifetime unit of veganism you're responsible for. Um, And that's awesome. You're helping with climate change and soil desertification and land use and animal protection and so many other things. But if you convince one other person to adopt a vegan diet, like in that moment, you have doubled your impact as a vegan just right then. Um, So for people who care about this issue, you can apply this to any issue you care about. um, You know, you as an activist do far more good than you as simply somebody who believes in the cause. Um, And so, yeah, for many years, um, especially after I first adopted a vegan diet, I had an absolute holier-than-thou attitude about it. Um, And when people would ask me about it, I would bury them in words um, (laughs) and not really be that interested in having a conversation. And that works with some people. The arguments are extraordinarily strong and, and some people will... If you bury them in words, they'll listen to the words and they'll change. But that's pretty antithetical to who we are as a species. We're we're social beings and the nature of discourse should be the nature of give and take. I mean, it goes all the way back to Socrates, um, who was um, executed for for, um, corrupting the youth of Athens, and he did that through what is now called the Socratic method. He had conversations with them and he helped them to see that his method um, of looking at political governance was the method that made the most sense by helping them to see that it aligned with the values that they already have. And this this can be absolutely used for a wide range of things that we believe in. Um, and building bridges to people is obviously going to be uh, significantly more effective than trying to just sort of browbeat them into seeing things from our perspective. So again, on the issue of veganism, uh, people care about the climate, uh, they care about global health, they care about animals. So Um, getting people talking about why they care about those things and then helping them to see how uh, they might want to align their daily actions with those values by making different choices at the lunch and dinner tables is going to be a lot more effective, I think, than just telling them everything that we know about uh, animal cruelty or the adverse impact of factory farming on the climate uh, or whatever else.
1: (laughs) can you explain the Socratic method and give an example of how it could be applied at the dinner table for example
2: um sure so somebody says to you why are you vegan um, which is you know sort of an, an interesting question for people who are vegan like the implications of that are um, why are you not eating animals and it probably makes a little bit more sense to ask why somebody would eat animals, except that it's just so um, obviously societally accepted as the thing that one does. Uh, But it used to be somebody would say, um, why are you vegan? And I would proceed to rant. I would say, you know, I I don't... (laughs) Uh, it works very well in an audience. I'm not sure it works very well on a podcast, but it's, um, you know, it, it's uh, maybe I would say thank you so much for asking, but it would be something like, oh my goodness, it's so inefficient to cycle crops through animals. Chicken is the most efficient animal at turning crops into meat. And yes, it takes nine calories into a chicken to one, get one calorie back out. The animal's manure use all kinds of nitrous oxide as it's decomposing and it contributes to methane, it contributes to carbon dioxide, starving the global, global poor. And have you seen these factory farms and have you seen these slaughterhouses? They're literally, you know, and off I would go. Um, Not really taking into account the idea that the person asked me a question to initiate a dialogue, not to initiate a a rant monologue. Um, (laughs) The Socratic method um, goes a lot more like this. The person says, "Um, why are you? Uh, a vegan, or why are you a vegetarian, or why are you not eating the turkey? Um, and instead of just immediately ranting, saying, "Oh, thank you know, thank you very much for asking." Um, are you a vegetarian? Are you a vegan? And generally speaking, most people who ask um, will say no. Um, and then you say something like, "Well, you know, have you have you heard about um, why some people might be? Do you do you understand um, what happens to animals on farms and in slaughterhouses?" And generally, the person will say you know, no, or they'll say, gosh, I don't want to hear about it. Or, you know, they'll say whatever they're going to say. And then as much as possible, um, not having more than a few sentences at a time from you uh, before you then say something like, does that make sense? Or have you thought about that? Or has that occurred to you? Or what do you think about that? Um, And this is, uh, I mean, (laughs) the number of times I have seen vegetarians and vegans engage with people. And the number of times their method of engagement has been rant monologue. Um, <laughs> it's just overwhelmingly the way that we engage because we care about this. Um, and it's it's similar to Democrats and Republicans. It's similar to um, both pro and anti-abortion. It's similar to just issues that people care about. They tend to want to spew their truth on to other people, rather than granting that other people are good people um, who don't understand the issues yet. Um, And we don't think about the fact that most of us did not change our beliefs on anything important because of somebody who shouted at us, made us wrong, shamed us. Um, And that's probably not going to be the most effective way for us to have conversations about really anything, and certainly not about veganism.
1: I love love everything that you're saying right now. And I would love if you could go even more specific. And when you're giving someone the two to three sentences about why it's important to you, do you give them facts or do you give them how you feel about it? What kind of of examples would you share with them in those two to three sentences?
2: Um, I mean, I generally say something like... um, you know, we have, my wife and I have, have three cats. Do you have companion animals? Um, and the person will say yes or no. Uh, many people do. Um, and then have you thought about, you know, the, whether there's really much of a difference between, um, a chicken, uh, a pig, a dog, um, or a cat and people generally, I mean, it, 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 this is the other reason this is so much more effective. And in, in addition to the fact that just sort of, um, social contract which dictates that people want to have conversations, not be lectured at. Um, As it does go back to similarly to Socrates, something like 97% of people um, want animals to be protected from cruelty. Um, The vast majority of people have no idea what happens to animals on farms and in slaughterhouses. And there really is not anything approximating a tenable justification For eating pigs, but not dogs, chickens, but not cats. So, usually the conversation I try to have with people um, is about how they would never eat a dog or a cat, and then not saying there's no difference, but saying, well, what do you see as the difference? Um, And then moving into you support legislation to stop cruelty to animals and think legislation to stop cruelty to animals is really important, um, and everybody does. Are you aware of the fact that there isn't any meaningful legislation that protects uh, chickens and pigs and other farm animals? And not going too deep into the details, but you can talk about confinement um, and the fact that farm animals are individuals just like dogs and cats um, who really suffer when they can't turn around for their entire lives. Um, you can talk somewhat um, about what's happening on these farms and in these slaughterhouses. Um, in a way that I think really resonates with people, as long as it's a conversation and not a sort of, you know, drowning them in information.
1: If the conversation starts going south, how do you salvage it? If you notice that the person you're speaking to is becoming a little bit defensive or maybe dismissive, how do you pick that conversation up and turn it into something positive?
2: Well, sometimes you. Can but it's very important to name it. I think what oftentimes happens in situations like that um, is that people see it happening, don't know what to do, and just sort of keep going with it. And it's surprisingly difficult, but also surprisingly effective and disarming to actually say, um, "I'm really sorry. I didn't mean to for this to to become confrontational." Um, But of course, you have to not be the one who's instigating uh, the confrontation and not be the one who's getting worked up. Um, And it's like if you if you do, that's totally fine. But at that point, you want to say, you know, this is I'm I'm becoming emotional um, and I really would like to take a step back. Um, This is a really important issue to me, and I would love to chat with you about it um, later. And maybe I can give you something to read or something like that. Uh, The reverse of that, if they become belittling or nasty or defensive. Um, is to say, I'm really sorry, I, I appear to have pushed some of your buttons here, and I'm really sorry that was the last thing I intended. Um, I engaged in this conversation because I really respect and love you, assuming' you're, it's like a family member. Um, if it's not a family member, I respect and like you. Um, assuming that's true. Um, I know you're a good person. Hopefully you believe that about everybody. Um, you know, something like that. Uh, but let's uh, let's shut down this conversation now um, and we can talk about you know something else now, but I would really love to pick this back up. Um, with you, you know, in a week or something, and maybe I can give you something to read that helps you better understand my perspective. And I and I will say that that these are things that are difficult to do, um, but just surprisingly effective with people because um, when people are getting worked up and you gently say, you know, I see that this conversation is getting emotional um, and let's, you know, shut it down and talk talk about something else. I mean, A, that works with the pe- person you're talking with, uh, but B, it's also really good if you're, you know, if you're at a dinner table with a bunch of people, you know, at a Christmas meal or something, um, it really makes you uh, the sort of hero of the moment um, and you have the opportunity to, to raise a significant moral issue. Uh, but also then sort of unraise it in a way that everybody will be really grateful for.
1: <laughs> yeah, I I think it's really important to assess the situation too, and to do what you said and feel it out. Paul and Paul, for everyone who doesn't know, is my husband. Oh, and I were at the gym earlier this morning, and I loved the fact that we are both aware enough at this point after. Paul has been vegan for 25 years, I've been vegan for 12. Uh, At this point, and this has not always been the case for either of us, where there was someone who was at the gym, we brought up game changers, he quickly let us know that he really strongly feels that as a personal trainer, we should be eating red meat, and rather than saying, no, you're wrong, uh, or X, Y, Z, this is the evidence, we just let it go. and. Paul for those took listening
0: game changers is a documentary.
1: Sorry. <laughs> Paul took his phone number and they were they were chatting already and will over time plant seeds. We mentioned one thing and then are in it for the long game to hopefully convince him with kindness and compassion and patience that that is not the truth that we do not need red meat to be athletes.
2: Yeah, no, I think that's a really important point. I mean, it, it hits on another point, which is, um, for a lot of people, you know, it's the sort of biblical principle: of a prophet is um, not best loved or best respected or whatever uh, in their own town, and um, an awful, an awful lot of um, family members really have a hard time taking um, moral or ethical concerns from their family members. I don't I really don't know what it is, but it, it does seem to be um a pretty consistent pattern. Um I mean I love uh, Eddie Lama uh in the wonderful, wonderful film. Uh the witness uh is just hilarious on this point. Um Eddie Lama is a a New York City contractor and um he has this hilarious line where he's like talking about trying to talk to his family um about veganism and they're like Eddie you're a criminal we're not gonna take uh, we're not gonna take uh, ethical uh, lessons from you, and uh, obviously most of us um, are not in that sort of a situation. But there's there's something to it, and I don't know what it is. Um, and it's really worth being, as you said, Tony, in the long game. It's also really worth letting things go. Like most of us were not vegan for our entire lives. We weren't bad people when we were not vegan previously. Um, if a family member is not open to hearing it, uh, the only thing that happens if you Really get upset about that or make it your sort of personal moral mission to convince them as soon as possible. So, sort of for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. It makes you unhappy, it makes them unhappy. Um, and it's probably counterproductive to actually convincing them to change. The number of people who have told me that once they stopped pushing so hard and just sort of lived by example. Um, and raised the issues in a sort of more friendly and occasional manner, uh, friends or family members then changed. I mean, A, that's a lot. Uh, but B, if they don't change, it's just, you know, it's really, however much it might feel like the end of the world, it's not the end of the world. And both you and they and your relationship will be better off um, if you apply your energies you know toward other people. You
1: just explained someone who feels really extremely passionate about these issues. How do you, or what advice do you give to them to contain their emotions? Sometimes in this situation, it can become very overwhelming and emotional. How do you calm your nerves in those situations?
2: Well, um, I think mindfulness. Um, You know, I'm just uh, so deeply grateful to Ari Nessel. Uh, for the degree to which he is bringing mindfulness uh, to the animal protection movement uh, in particular. And at the Good Food Institute, we offer headspace for free uh, to all staff members. And um, there, I mean, seriously, it's like 10 seconds to just breathe in peace and breathe out um, distress works wonders. And then move on to another topic. Like a lot of people are just so Um, So upset by what's going on that they cannot have um, a conversation about it without breaking down. If that's you, that's a perfectly reasonable, that's a more rational response to what's going on uh, than not being that way Um, and having some self-awareness about that. And perhaps, you know, if you want to engage in an email exchange, um, assuming you can do that um, in a friendly and loving way, that's an option. But another option is just to recognize that you're not going to get everybody and um, redouble your efforts to be um, an effective communicator um, and to effectively advocate for the issue that you care about, whether that's, you know, animals or politics or whatever, Uh, redouble your efforts in other areas that play to your strengths if the one-on-one communication is not playing to your strengths. So there are lots of things that people can do um, that don't require that you engage in a lot of one-on-one communication with people. Um, Signing up to write letters on behalf of groups that you support is one option. Um, I really like Karen Dawn's Dawn Watch and writing letters, if you're good at that, uh, to newspapers and magazines. You get a letter in the New York Times about these issues. You're reaching hundreds of thousands of people. That's extraordinarily powerful. Um, And um, you know, do, doing what you're good at and not doing what you're, you know, less good at, I think is going to be uh, is going to be one really important lesson.
0: Gosh, you're saying sharing so much wisdom. I like can't wait to re-listen to this episode myself because I think it is so helpful, even if you've been plant-based or vegan or just communicating for a long, long time. Um, I think it's also interesting. This is something that you used to do, and I don't know if you do it anymore. But you used to wear a shirt that would say, ask me why I'm vegetarian. And I used to think, oh my God, you're so brave. That terrifies me. To <laughs> like. Um, but it's this beautiful opportunity to take conversations outside of the really heated family environment where, as you're saying, I mean, you could be butting heads for your entire life and never walk away from that feeling good to open dialogue with strangers in line at the airport or something like that um, if you... If you enjoy having these conversations, can you talk a little bit about that experience?
2: Yeah, no, it's the best shirt ever. And I have a, a whole ton of them. Um, and it, it's surprising to me. I do I do always uh, begin that conversation by asking if the person asking the question is a vegetarian or a vegan. Um, and they almost never are. Uh, people who are vegetarian or vegan say, awesome shirt, I love that. Uh, <laughs> but, but people who ask um, are not. And two things are critically important. Um, thing one is Really practice getting good at having conversations with people um, rather than um, unloading on them um, the stuff that I said earlier, asking them if they have a companion animal, asking them um, and then waiting for an answer um, what they see as a difference between a chicken and a cat, um, a pig and a dog. Um and it really is like you will watch people's awareness, like. Stuff clicks on. They have never seen. They have never encountered that question before in their lives. Um they don't know anything about farms and slaughterhouses. Like every single one of those conversations is the opportunity to double your lifetime impact in that three minute, five minute conversation, double your lifetime impact. So it really does for people who can have those conversations or get good at having those conversations effectively, um, it strikes me as just an incredible, incredible tool. Um, for effective advocacy. So thing one is get really good at the Socratic method, uh, get really good at having that conversation. And then thing two is carry literature. Um, Gosh, I'm trying, I'm trying to put a percentage on it, but, but well over half of people, um, if you have some vegan recipes or um, a vegetarian starter kit from one of the many organizations that has them or a uh, why vegan uh, from the vegan outreach, um, very close to yeah, well over half of people will, will take the literature. Um, so you're not just having the conversation that causes them. You, you really do blow people's minds in that moment and cause them to just like radically transform how they're thinking about something fairly fundamental in the course of just a couple of minutes. Um, and if you can leave with them with literature, it just sort of reinforces it um, as they walk away. Um, highly, highly recommend that people do that.
0: The other thing that I love about that is oftentimes you're hitting people on the street before they get into their car or at the airport before they get on the plane and they're alone. And it gives them a chance after the conversation to reflect and think about things without uh, just jumping into conversations with other people or life or like the party scenario where you don't really have that chance to reflect. So I think that's beautiful. And then I also think what's so cool about the Socratic method and this approach to communication is that it really is the simplest. Once you like reframe your way of communicating and your way of thinking about these things and asking people questions, it makes communicating so much easier. Like, you don't have to have any facts memorized, you don't have to have read all of the books. Like, we're talking about comparing farmed animals to com- companion animals. This is something that, like, a five year old can communicate about. And some of them do. It's really beautiful to watch. But A lot of the, I think, stress and pressure feels like, oh my God, I remember reading these things and I can't draw the fact, or you're worried that someone's gonna ask you a question you don't know the answer to. And um, yeah, so I think this is a beautiful way to dodge that situation.
2: Well, let me, can I just, uh, can I just say two things? One is lots of facts are counterproductive rather than productive. Um, So people will think that having a whole bunch of stuff memorized is going to help them have conversations. There was a poster Um, 20, 25 years ago that said how to win an argument with a meat eater. And it was just like a gazillion facts about (laughs) factory farming. Um, And I just think that's so counterproductive because that's not how people make moral decisions. People make moral decisions on the basis of stories and anecdotes and big picture ideas, not a gazillion facts and figures. Um, So it's not just it's not just um, not helpful. It's actually counterproductive to have all of that stuff memorized. Um, in my opinion, um, well, it's fine to have it memorized, but it's counterproductive to spew it at people. Um, in my opinion. And then, then the second thing is, yes, you will get questions that you don't know the answer to. And there's something about the sort of, um, the, the sort of what's considered to be, um, SOP around having conversations with people that if they have a question for you, you need to come back with the most effective answer possible. And that's just wrong. That's not how um, that's not how hearts and minds are won over. And if you watch, for example, the Sunday morning shows, the most effective people um, at having political conversations are the people who have the conversation they want to have. And it's fun if you look at it as a little bit of a game to go in um, and really think about the question that the um, host is asking, and then listen to see whether the politician answers that question, and the frequency with which the thing the politician says has nothing almost to do with the question that's that's asked, um, and you just don't even notice it if the politician is skilled. And I'm not saying that's what we should do exactly, but we should remember that nothing anybody says in a conversation um, about veganism is going to rebut. The central idea that you are eating when you eat meat, someone, not something. Uh, you're eating a being and that there is no moral difference between eating you know that farm animal and eating a companion animal. but most people would never eat the companion animal despite eating the farm animal. And there's also no reasonable response to the idea that you're supporting cruelty that would be felony level if the farm animals had some sort of legal protection. And as long as you can keep the conversation there, um, you're going to be pretty effective. And then you know, the one thing you do, you do need to be really ready for is, is there are a lot of people who are interested in this and they will legitimately ask you the where do you get your protein um, question or where do you eat? Um, so you need to be ready to have conversations with people um, about health issues. But as long as you do it in a like friendly way, using your personal story, uh, these conversations are going to go very, very well for you.
1: I have two questions, but first I want to continue on this with um, what are your favorite resources to offer to people when they ask you about health or that they want to know more about health? Um, I,
2: I just think Game Changers uh, has changed the game uh, mm-hmm. for us. Um, I thought Forks Over Knives was pretty pretty phenomenal too, and I really like that 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 also streams on Netflix. But um, I and pe- you know, most people now have Netflix, which is pretty pretty glorious. So um, referring people to Forks Over Knives, report, referring people to Game Changers, referring referring people to uh, Doctor Gregor Doctor Gregory's NutritionFacts dot org um, and his book How Not to Die. Um, having a basic capacity to talk about uh, Caldwell Esselstein, uh, in particular, and prevent and reverse heart disease. Um, I think is is pretty effective, and um, yeah, I think those are those are probably um, those are probably some of my some of my go tos.
1: Okay, and going back a little bit, you keep saying effective, and I, I'm going to go back to the vegetarian shirt thing because I've been thinking about it since you and Michelle were talking, and I'm wondering if I'm doing something that is not effective by not wearing a vegetarian shirt because I have tried to not wear vegetarian shirts and my approach instead is to be as normal as possible to build a rapport with someone and then to drop the vegetarian knowledge is that is that not as effective
2: well I mean I, I guess it uh, I guess it depends um, on how you're interacting with people um so the the good thing I, I wouldn't recommend general vegetarian uh, regalia. Um, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's fine, um, but I think probably um, if you're going to get around to having conversations with people in some other way, not having animal rights or vegetarian shirts on is probably more effective than not having them on. Uh, but if you're going about your day and you're wearing some sort of um, vegetarian or uh, vegan, although I do think vegetarian is a lot more effective for what we're trying to do than vegan. Um, You know, if you're wearing something and people see it, that's kind of a mini hit for that concept and and normalizes it in society in a way that's good. Uh, But the Ask Me Why shirt in particular uh, generates the conversations that allow you uh, to have transformational conversations with people. Definitely, if you are like at an event, if you're tabling um, at an event and you're there to promote um, animal protection or vegetarianism, uh, or you're leafleting uh, with vegan outreach or something, I think having some sort of shirt, you know, having some, you know, like uh, Vic from Vegan Outreach um, talks about um, wearing sports, you know, jerseys or sports hats or something like that. I think that's um, incredibly effective if you're already. Um, passing out literature that's about vegetarianism or veganism. Um, so I think I could go either way. The The main thing that I like um, from a wearing vegetarian um, t-shirts is, is specifically the ask me why I'm vegetarian because it actually generates the conversations that I think oftentimes wouldn't have happened otherwise.
1: You mentioned that it would be more effective to have it say vegetarian. Can you explain why that is?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's um, so there is a lot more sympathy in general society for vegetarianism relative to veganism. There is a lot of consumer perception research to indicate um, that vegans are seen by a lot of people um, as scolds. Um, I mean, there's like there's one study that talked about um, I think vegans fared slightly better than like Drug addicts, but only slightly better. Um, so you're just really trying to, you're starting from a negative with vegan oftentimes. Um, and your conversations will oftentimes be about creamer in coffee um, or some fairly minuscule ingredient or reading ingredient lists or um, a wide variety of things that make it harder to get quickly um, to what I think is going to be your most effective. Tactic for conversation, uh, which is that, you know, compare the pig to the dog, the cat to the chicken. Um, instead, you're talking about things that are um, going to be, I think, significantly less impactful.
1: Yeah, that's good. Uh, so I'm going to ask you just a couple questions that people may encounter this holiday season and maybe just in general when they tell people that they're vegan. Uh, and then would you mind answering them for us, please? I'd be delighted. Great, Michelle, do you want to start? Bruce, isn't veganism
0: a bit extreme?
2: What, what, uh, what, Michelle? Do you think is extreme about it exactly?
0: <laughs> that's beautiful. I already feel stupid asking the question.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Wouldn't we be overrun with animals if we stopped eating them?
2: You know that's a that's a really interesting point, and uh, I've heard. That question from a lot of people. Uh, But the the thing to recognize is that we are right now breeding these animals in order to eat them. And so the way supply and demand works is that if we stop eating them, none of the animals who are currently in farms or in slaughterhouses are not going to be consumed. But over time, if like 10% of society went vegan or vegetarian overnight, the price for the products would plummet. And as the price fell, the supply would fall. So it's important to recognize that chickens only live six or seven weeks. Um, even cattle only live 18 to 24 months. So um, the idea would be that we would just stop breeding these animals and raising them in order to slaughter them. But we wouldn't, you know, Manhattan's not going to be overrun with chickens or anything. Uh, that That's an example of a question where it probably is a pretty, like that question comes up a lot. There there are basically like 10 questions that come up a lot mm-hmm. that you like actually um, are going to want to answer uh, with an answer. There's not really a Socratic way of coming back at that one because the person legitimately believes it um, and just hasn't thought through the question that they're asking. Like they heard somebody else say it, and so they're going to say it too. Um, and it's and, and once you explain it to people, I've never had anybody uh, get that ex- explanation and not say, "Oh yeah, of course, right." Um, right. But, um, but, yeah, you do need to you do do need to be ready to answer um some small number of questions, and that's one of them
0: that's a good point to differentiate. Okay. I understand all that and why you're vegan, but I could never give up cheese
2: um, well, then, don't give up cheese. Um, what do you think about Could you give up chicken?
0: Mm, maybe. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so I mean, and, and this is one where it might be useful to be able to say, um, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with people, and they will say, um, I can't give up cream in my coffee, or I can't give up cheese, or I can't give up ice cream, and that ends up being a reason to eat chicken and fish and pigs and cows because we as a species tend to be sort of all or nothing. Um, but if you have to eat turkey on Thanksgiving, eat turkey on Thanksgiving. If you have to eat cheese or ice cream or cream in your coffee, eat cheese or cream or ice cream or cream in your coffee. Just don't let that be. Um, a reason to eat everything else as well?
1: I'm an athlete and I really need my protein and red meat is just the best source of it. So,
2: What causes you to think that red meat is the best source of protein?
1: Well, I I started the keto diet and (laughs) I've read all about it and it's just everything I've read, the doctors, the science, the evidence, it all points to red meat being the best.
2: That's really interesting. that That hasn't been my experience. And I don't think that's what uh, most nutritionists and doctors believe to be true. There's a really amazing new movie called Game Changers. Have you heard of this movie?
1: No, I haven't.
2: It's pretty fascinating. they They have um, there's like an entire football team. Some of the guys on the football team uh, go vegan and end up having a lot more energy the strongest person in the world. He carries like thousands of pounds or some crazy amount of weight. um, And he's vegan or vegetarian. Uh, He's actually vegan. Um, Is this something that you'd be interested in learning more about?
1: Yeah, but isn't soy bad for you? They probably eat a bunch of soy. Um,
2: And I'm sorry, why do you think soy is bad for you?
1: Because it's got estrogen.
2: (laughs) oh interesting yeah no i I don't think that there's uh i don't think there's any valid scientific literature that indicates that soy is bad for you where did Where
1: did you read that? <laughs> I read that if I feed it to my husband, <laughs> he will grow breasts that's
2: interesting well i've I've been vegan for thirty two years and I know an awful lot of other people who are vegetarian and vegan who eat a lot of soy. It's super popular all over asia and uh I don't think there's any scientific validity for that idea, but I'd be happy to, I'd be happy to email you some more information.
0: <laughs> this is my favorite Q&A ever. We're like dying over here on the other side. Um, obviously meat harms animals, but what could possibly be wrong with milk?
2: Um, so you know why human mothers give milk, right?
0: To feed their babies.
2: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And that's that's what's true um, of cows as well. So uh, they, this is another one that's in the category of people have heard this. They think it's true. It's never occurred to them. And somewhat, somewhat surprisingly, like um, one of the things that I hear from people um, who have heard talks that I gave many years ago, like the number of people who have contacted me and said, I just never thought about the fact that What happens to the babies just never occurred to me. Uh, So this is another one where I think um, being able to – this will be an aha moment for a lot of people. Um, And one of the things about these aha moments, especially if you've been uh, vegan or vegetarian for a while, you might think a question um, is um, really not smart. Um, And oftentimes if somebody asks you a question that you think they're legitimately – curious about, and I think always that's going to be the case with this question, Um, saying something like, I hear this question a lot, um, is super validating for people. Mm. Um, That's a really good question, is also super validating for people. Um, And I use both of those phrases liberally in interactions with people. It gets people like smiling and nodding. Um, And then um, saying, you know, I, I used to, and I used to feel that way too. Um, or I used to wonder about that is also really good. Um, and then I learned, so you're making it about you, not me- not about making them wrong. Um, and then I learned that the babies of, of mother dairy cows um, are taken away generally within 24 hours and they form really strong strong bonds. And this one guy I heard, he says that metaphorically, there's a hunk of veal in every glass of milk because all of the veal industry, every single one of the roughly million calves who are kept in veal crates? They are one hundred percent the babies of dairy cows. So, in addition to the fact that dairy cows are treated pretty badly and hooked up to machines, they also have their babies taken away immediately, and those babies are treated pretty badly. Have you ever thought about that?
0: No, never.
2: Well, yeah, I hadn't either. I hadn't either, and it really just uh, it shook me when I learned about it. You know what? What do you think,
1: Bruce? That's really compelling, but I'm on a tight budget and. And being vegan is really expensive.
2: Well, I've got a website and a book for you. <laughs> uh, so I'd, I'd say, Tony, you're going to be uh, in a significantly better uh, position to to talk with people about that. But I, I do think plant-based on a budget is a, a phenomenal service. Um, and, and also just pointing out to people that areas of the world that are vegetarian, not by choice, um, aren't vegetarian, not by choice because they are – Uh, they are vegetarian, but not by choice because uh, legumes uh, and uh, grains are significantly cheaper than meat, which is a product of basic efficiency. It's just significantly less efficient to grow lots of crops, to feed them to animals so that we can eat animals. The cheapest thing on every menu um, other than plant-based meat, which is more expensive because of economies of scale, but You go to like any Italian restaurant or any restaurant that has vegetarian options other than plant-based meat, and the cheapest thing on the menu is going to be the vegetarian or the vegan option. Um, So yes, it can be more expensive if you want to eat lots of plant-based meat. That's going to change in a few years. That's true now. Uh, But um, beans and grains and fruits and vegetables, that's, uh, that's the cheapest way to eat.
1: Thank this you. A,
2: so this is the one where oh. when somebody asks the question, they like you know are legitimately looking for an answer. It's not a sort
1: of gotcha question. Yeah. Well, we we loved all of your answers and had a good time listening to them. And we're so grateful that you have come on and shared all of your knowledge with us.
2: Well, I'm delighted to be here and really appreciate the service that you are both doing uh, with all of your all of your work online with your documentary, uh, with, with everything. It's really, uh, it's exciting and inspiring. So thank you. And I'm, I'm really pleased that you invited me to be on.
0: Thank you, Bruce. Um, before we say farewell for now, uh, do you have any final words of advice or encouragement to all of those who are stepping into the holidays, perhaps for the first time as plant-based eaters, um, any final words for them?
2: Um, I mean, I, I, guess the, the main thing, and I, and I said it earlier, uh, Or I guess this is sort of a variation on that, but it's really don't beat yourself up um, if you don't get things exactly um, how you want to get them, if things don't go exactly as you want them to go. I mean, I think just as a sort of advice in life, um, if something in the moment is not going to still be impacting you adversely um, in a few years, it's probably not worth getting too upset about it in the moment. And the vast majority of what we get upset about in the moment isn't even going to be adversely impacting us in a week, let alone a year. So um, be gentle with yourselves um, and do the best you can. And thank you so much for being on the winning side of history.
1: And lastly, where can people find you if they want to know more about what you're doing at the Good Food Institute?
2: Uh, We are online at GF i good food institute uh, gfi.org all right thanks bruce thanks tony thanks michelle thank you thank you both very much
0: all right wow that was an inspiring episode i'm so so glad we recorded that i I kind of wish that this had existed 10 years ago or 12 years ago however long ago i went vegan um hopefully it was helpful to all of you guys if you're hungry for more examples of how to respond to the most common questions i created a whole guide over on world to vegan um actually, it's like a whole video series called Veg Answers. Most of them I recorded with Colleen Patrick Goudreau, but some other um, awesome communicators as well. Including and, Bruce. Including Bruce. And so that's just at worldofvegan.com
1: slash veganswers. And we'll, rec- we'll include that in the show notes as well. I know I found this to be really helpful. It's nice, even if you know the information, to be reminded that you don't have to answer every single question. You don't have to get into a debate. It can be a friendly conversation and you can frame it the way you think will have a positive outcome. And that's not always just dumping all of the information onto Mm -hmm. someone. Yeah. So valuable to keep that in our minds always.
0: Well, you guys, the holidays are fast approaching. I personally celebrate Hanukkah, but that also my husband Christmas and Tony's getting all ready to celebrate both as well. Um, we call it Chrismica. Chrismica. If any oh of you guys watch the OC. I was just going to say,
1: I'm going to buy Paul
0: one of those. Uh, Yama Claus. Yama Claus. <laughs> if anyone watched the show, the OC, you may understand that. Um, reference. But we have both created several different resources to help you guys through other elements of surviving the holidays or thriving through the holidays, making holiday themed recipes and beyond. And we'll include all of that over in the show notes. And you'll find lots of that if you just search Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever at World of Vegan, you'll find worldofvegan.com, you'll find that and then tons of recipes over at Plant Based on a Budget.
1: Yes. So go to com for tons and tons of recipes, but also Michelle and I have uh, an episode from last year called Five Ways to Survive the Holidays. So look into that too. Yep. And we'll include all of that there. Thank you guys so much.
0: If you want to do something special for the holidays for us, the greatest gift in the whole world would be a review over on iTunes. It doesn't cost anything, but a few minutes of your
1: time and it will make us so, so happy. Yes. You can also check us out on Patreon and support us there. And Yeah. Just drop us a a line too. We check our emails and I check Instagram. So we love to hear from you. We're wishing you all the happiest, most special, memory-filled, compassionate, kind,
0: wonderful holiday season. And until the next episode, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye.